Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I hope you're okay. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have for you an excellent program. Melissa Broder is my guest. Her new novel, Milk Fed, is out there now from Scribner. You're going to hear a conversation between uh, me and Melissa Broder in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Crossing, publisher of the novel The Ardent Swarm by Yamen Manai. It is the winner of multiple literary awards in France, as well as a Penheim Translation Fund grant. It is critically acclaimed uh, all over the world. The Arden Swarm is a brilliantly accessible modern-day parable written by a Tunisian-born Parisian resident. Yaman Manai uses a masterful blend of humor and drama to reveal what happens in a country shaken by revolutionary change after the world stops watching. The Ardent Swarm is about a bee whisperer. That's right, uh, a bee whisperer, a beekeeper, a bee expert, a man who understands bees. He lives on the outskirts of a desolate North African village, and he awakes one morning to find that a mysterious swarm of vicious hornets has attacked his beehives, brutally killing every inhabitant. But where do they come from, and how can he stop them? If he is going to unravel this mystery and save his bees, the beekeeper, his name is Sidi, must venture out into the village in search of answers. Out there, he discovers a country and a people turned upside down by their new uh, post-Arab spring reality as Islamic fundamentalists seek to influence votes any way they can on the eve of the country's first democratic elections. The Ardent Swarm is uh, out now from Amazon Crossing. Amazon Crossing publishes award-winning and best-selling books from around the world, making international literature accessible to many readers for the first time. You can find out more at apub.com. So for those of you uh, who are new to the Other People podcast, this show is offered freely. It's a weekly show. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Sometimes there are new episodes on Sunday, but always on Wednesday. You can find the show at otherppl.com. You can follow it on Twitter at otherppl. It's also on Instagram. And uh, it also has its own app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. So you can find it wherever you find podcasts. Listen up if you wish. My guest today is, once again, Melissa Broder. 
Her new novel, Milkfed, is out there now from Scribner. Uh, this is a wonderful book. So enjoyable. Like an unlikely romance. Funny. Uh, like a wistful, painful, moving exploration of desire. A very feminine book. You're going to hear me talk about all of this with Melissa. I've known her for years. We go back. We're old pals, and uh, she's a big talent. So I'm thrilled for her to see her uh, having more publication success. She is on a roll. Her other books include the novel The Pisces, the essay collection So Sad Today, and five poetry collections, including the upcoming uh, collection Super Doom, Selected Poems, which is due out this summer. She's also the author of a poetry collection called Last Sext. And uh, she's the mastermind behind the uh, At So Sad Today Twitter feed, which has over a million followers. So without any uh, further introduction, let's get to the conversation with Melissa Broder. Her new novel, One More Time, is called Milk Fed. So when I was in college, I had I wrote this horrific short story um, about uh, a woman with an eating disorder who falls in love with a very zoftig woman who has a lot of freedom around food and her body. And it was like a the story was like a big piece of shit. Like it's probably why I just only wrote poetry for the next ten years. Like the the zoftig woman was named Gaia, and she was like this earth figure. Like it was a disaster. But I've always wanted to tell this story. And um, a couple of years ago, I started feeling this nostalgia for like the Jewiness of my childhood. And I couldn't figure out why, because it's like we live in Los Angeles. It's basically Fiddler on the Roof. Like there's no shortage of Jews here, you know, but I, so I couldn't figure out, well, what was this nostalgia? Why was I feeling this longing? And what I realized was that what I felt the longing for was um, like when my grandparents used to take me to the delis in New York and I felt like a little precious, innocent treasure. One of the only times in my childhood when I felt that sense of innocence and like a treasure. And... Um, and so, and I started to think about my relationship with food and my relationship with spirituality and the ways that those appetites, uh, the appetite for the divine and the appetite for food, and then also desi sexual desire, the ways they're all interconnected. And that's how the Jew, that's how the Jewish element made its way in. And I started writing the story. Okay. Again. Okay. So the, the story uh, that you're telling is a kind of unlikely love story between two women, just for yeah. people for people who haven't read. So there's Rachel, who's the protagonist. She's like a 24-year-old, I believe, uh, yep. young comedian in Los Angeles. And then there's Miriam Schwebel, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who is, um, you know... Uh, I love hearing you pronounce it. That yeah, was so cute. Yeah, she's like an Orthodox Jewish... I mean, you can describe... She's your character. Like, Miriam would be the Zaftig character. But she's Zaftig. She's a kosher coquette. She's so hot. You know, to me, she's so hot. She's, like, very voluptuous. Like, okay, I'll tell you what... Like, she wears, like... A, she'll wear... She wears, like, a long, like, psychedelic patterned dress that is, like, fully, like under orthodox custom in the sense that it covers her to the wrist and to the ankle 
but like you can see all of her curves in this beautiful dress so it's like you know it's like she's like a she's like it's like Jacob and the Technicolor frozen yogurt dream cut so coat so Rachel works at Miriam Miriam works at Rachel's frozen yogurt shop and, and Rachel is just because we got to make sure that people listening who have not read understand the dichotomy here like Rachel is food obsessive eating disordered obsessed yeah. with being skinny She's like uh, Our Lady of Body Dysmorphia. Yeah, and then you have Miriam, who, like, kind of doesn't have a care in the world, and is sort of like happily embodied in that regard. In that regard, yeah, like she just she is free in the ways that Rachel is not free. There we go. So at first, Rachel perceives her as completely free. You know, who among us is completely free? I don't think. I don't know that any of us are completely free, but Rachel perceives Miriam as completely free because Miriam is free in the way that Rachel is not free, which is um, very in touch with her hunger and okay with it. Okay. So here's a question I have. Mm. Uh, does Have you ever met anybody like Miriam? Like, I, I, I was struggling to decide, because I love the character and... Uh, I fell, you know, she's easy to fall in love with. But at the same time, I was like, is this like, is this a fairy tale? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, are there people in the world who have this relationship with themselves? Which is like, I, I feel like there's something really like ultra healthy about it. Um, and also this relationship with food, like just enjoy food and don't think about the consequences of how it's going to affect your weight or your health. Like, I wonder if I know anybody like this. Like, do you know women like this or people like this? Well, here's what I'll say, rather than talking about reality. What I'll say is that we see Miriam through Rachel's eyes. We don't see Miriam through Miriam's own eyes. We see, you know, right? Like every encounter we have with Miriam is through Rachel's perspective. And, you know, and what I will say is like, how real is anyone we ever fall in love with? How flawless or free? especially in those early days of that narcotic limerence, right? Like with the Pisces, a lot of people ask, well, is Theo the merman real? And I was always like, well, how real is anyone we fall in love with? And I feel that in some ways the same could be said about Miriam's um, healthy attitude toward food and um, joie de vie. Um, have I met people who have that freedom and delight with indulgence? Yes. Um, have I met women who have that freedom and delight with indulgence? Yes. Um, but I have not met any Miriams. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to say, like, I was evaluating my own relationship with food as I was reading this book. I think it's kind of inevitable. Well, you are no Miriam. I mean, let's let's put it on the table. <laughs> You're more Rachel than Miriam. That's... You're not a Rachel. Right. But if we had to, you're more Rachel than Miriam. Well, see, this is the thing. Like, I was trying to figure out, because I'm a vegan for the most part. Like, but I'm not oh, like. Come on, you're vegan. Yeah, but I, like, if someone puts a piece of chocolate in front of me, I'm not going to be like, is there almond milk in this chocolate? Like, I'm. And, and I also wear leather shoes sometimes. So, like, you know, you got to define vegan in terms of how, like, rigorous you're going to be about it. Um, but I would say like 95% of what I eat is animal free. Okay. Maybe even a little bit more, but you know, not perfect, but close, uh, on that, uh, metric. And so like, 
I struggle with this. Like, I don't want to seem or be like too rigid and uh, crazy. And I ask myself, like, why I do this? Like, why am I doing this? Is this like kind of austerity, like some kind of self punishment? <laughs> Is it born of some like self esteem thing, or am I making like a rational decision based on a confluence of factors? I don't know. Well, the listies are Catholics, right? Yes, yes. The listies are ca- all right. So you're coming from a Catholic origin. Not to boil this all down to religion, because it's not. However, knowing you fairly well, having eaten many a meal with you, right? I would say, okay. Do you want me to? I, like I like I think that you, if 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 you fell into any category, it would probably be more of like the orthorexic, which is like. Uh, very like the health and goodness like you are a you are I always say Brad is one of the best citizens that I know no it's true like and it's like you know you want your daughter to marry Brad like you you just do I don't know about that talk talk to my wife about that (laughs) (laughs) I feel to me you're a good citizen of the world you know you can recommend an umbrella and like I will believe in that like choice you know and like your veganism my own lack, my own eating of animal carcasses is something that I don't like about myself. And yet, you know, I'm still like behind the wheel of the car, like with a fucking like, like, uh, I'm a, I'm a beef jerky girl. I am. I am. <laughs> and so I, I'm eating death like often. And so I really respect that about you. But so, but I would say it's more of an orthorexia. Um, and wait, what, what is orthorexia? Orthorexia is, um, it's wait well let's let's google it's like a it's like a focus on health but to an extent like you know when there's somebody who like you know when you have that friend who some people run a marathon because they just like like it which i don't really understand but then there's like i have a lot of friends who like are like i'm running the marathon and i'm like dude this is like the worst idea for you like this is just your eating disorder and body dysmorphia like under a mantle you know what i'm saying like given and so it's sort of like um like the you like like a, a real focus on like the health perspective, but sometimes with a bit of a tainted um, or like you can use it to beat yourself up. You know, like I'd say if you if you trended in any direction, it would be I'm not saying you're orthorexic, but it would be more in that direction rather than like bulimia. Right. Like your star is not your compass is not pointed that direction. You know what I'm doing lately? Like I've been doing this for a long time now is I do intermittent fasting. I only eat two meals a day. That's very ortho because it's like, you know, it's like Goop <laughs> says it's a good idea. Yeah. Or just like or it's like part of the cell. It's like things I would define orthorexia as like things you can do as part of the self-love industrial complex that are like grandfathered in as good. But it depends who you are as to whether it's good or not and to what extent you take it. Like for some people, fasting is probably great for others who have a more punishing relationship to themselves right like these things are not all these things are not equal it's like when i go to like when like before we were in quarantine like i would go to a spin class and they're like remember why you came here like give yourself give yourself a pat on the back like remember why you're here and i'm like i'm here because i fucking hate myself and can't leave myself alone like it's not good that i'm here you know or like i had this therapist who i I like showed up and I had just been like running in like the 85 degree heat. And she's like, that's great that you move your body. And I'm like, it is like really not great. In fact, like, you know, but for some people it would be great. Right. Not for me. Yeah. I think so that, it's not intent. 
I think, yeah, I think that uh, I'm like 45 now. I have to kind of, I often have to get up in the night to pee. I'm, I'm, I'm at that age now. Like things are changing. How chain- many times are you getting up at night to pee, would you say, on average? Zero, zero to one. It depends on zero. the night. Like some nights I just tough it out, but I usually have to, I could pee. That's child's play. That's, yeah. I don't care about your zero to one <laughs> bullshit. Okay, but here's my point. And three, tell me, you know, talking talk, like two to three here. Okay, are, are you two? Like, are you two to three? Oh, I'm two to three. Okay, well, I'm, I'm upwards of two to three. I uh, I did not formerly have to do that, so I'm noticing myself aging. Like I'm noticing at at my mid forties is the first time I've really felt differences in my body. And something that I realized is that like I was kind of getting annoyed by this like kind of arbitrary, like you got to eat three meals a day. Like I got to have my breakfast and then I got to have my, I'm like, I'm not actually fucking hungry because my metabolism is slowing down. Like it's too much food and it's, I I don't need it. Like I, my body doesn't need this much. And uh, I tried to just cut breakfast out. And by the time I get to lunch, like I'm genuinely hungry and I eat whatever I want. You know, I don't eat any meat, but I eat whatever I want. And then I eat dinner. What's your typical lunch? It depends. Like I'll have... You haven't had lunch yet today, right? No. So I'll have soup, salad, toast, or I'll have like... What kind of soup? uh, These great soups from Erewhon. It's like the most LA thing to say. But, you know, they have these like pre-made like green soups and lentil soups that are just like... They come in like uh, mason jars or not mason jars. Would you do like a soup and a salad? Sure. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. It's a delicious it's lunch. So nice. <laughs> wow. Um, but no, like I, I, I like to think I'm being logical. And I think like too, like really and truly, who decided we need three meals a day? Did the cavemen need three meals a day? You ate when you fucking caught some food or killed something. Um, I mean, it's it's lovely if that's what you want to do. But if if I'm only hungry twice a day, like truly hungry then that's okay too i would think right and it makes sense as, snacks yeah after after my lunch like i'll eat i eat whatever i want from like 130 like what you want when what you want is like a delicious <laughs> vegan soup and a salad like great like i tried to do intuitive eating once okay because all right let me just back up here for a second i don't right. need to cut you off no please and I don't mean to compare and despair because we are all <laughs> God's children. That's However, right. I just want to give you a little glimpse. All right. So my oldest relationship, my longest relationship is my fucked up relationship with food in my body. Okay. Started very young. And um, I've been through every incarnation. Um, I was never a, a vomit bulimic. I be, But simply because I once my stomach gets a hold of something, it does not let go. But I was a laxatives girl. Um which is a fucking disaster. But that was, so I've been through like every incarnation, right? Like high school, I had like, I was anorexic. I've been, a, I've had like really frightening bouts of binge eating, I, like disorder. I've had like the whole nine, right? And so, um, but so one time I tried to do intuitive eating. What is that? It's like kind of what you do. It's like giving your body what it craves. <laughs> okay, my body... First of all, like, and I have had my body on silence for so, like, I've had it on, like, 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 vibrate mode. Like, I've had my appetite on vibrate mode for, like, so long. So when I turn it on, or it's like, it's been off. Right. So when I turn it on, it's like 50 texts come flooding in. You know, it's just like, (laughs) feed me. And so, um, 
when I tried to do intuitive eating, it just ended in like, it was like a fucking bender. It was like dozen donut. Like it went crazy. Cause I, yeah. So I will just say that, um, I love, I think it's beautiful that you eat whatever you want, but it seems that your wants are like good. Well, th- yeah. Cause I have this, like, I'm one of these people where I'm like, food like is life- fuel. Yeah, F- food is fuel. Food like to me, that fuel. that's my practical. Like, and and don't get me wrong. Like, no, that's I, lovely. I like to have a glass of wine. I I will have a cocktail. I like. I love dessert. I have a sweet tooth. I eat dessert every day. Um, uh, whether it's like a bowl of <laughs> dairy free ice cream or. Oh, uh... <laughs> This is the fundamental difference for us, right? Like, yeah. you love you love a nice glass of wine, a nice dessert. Yeah. Like, I want to be out of my goddamn, like, a nice glass of wine. Somebody the other day was tweeting about, like, a cocktail. I'm like, never in my life did I have a cocktail. Like, I want out. I'm like, yeah. give me two tickets to, like, Blackoutville. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be, like, dead and not feel it happening. You know, like, that's what I... <laughs> You know, and so we're coming, we approach it from different places, you know, but so, yeah. But, but, but but we both think about it a lot. Like, that's the thing. Like you and I have, I think we've had a dialogue like off, you know, outside of the context of, of this show or whatever, like, uh, in our friend lunches and just over the years talking, like we've talked about food before. Um, it's not like, I think as a guy, maybe of a certain type, like, cis male you know what i'm saying like not all guys my age who fit my profile are vegan and they certainly don't sit around thinking about food maybe as much as i do so i've got a bit of it you know i don't think i'm one of these dudes who's just like give me like a turkey leg and a beer you know (laughs) hashtag not all men um so no, I mean I like I feel like you do have a um a consciousness and you bring that consciousness though to every area of your life I think I mean you know that's I mean not to toot your horn but like like I said you're a good global citizen well you like what you put in your body has like ecological like this is I like I don't want to make this all about me being a vegan because I don't no, care. I, I like that I like I, it I, I, do, I don't care I'm not a proselytizer but people often ask you and yeah what I always say like like it's exhausting to try to figure out what to eat because it always changes. It's like, be a paleo, eat like a caveman. What? You're eating grains? Then you're going to have grain brain. What? You're not eating whole grains? Oh my God. Your like, lack of fiber is going to make you die. You know, it's constantly changing. So there's never really any way to nail down what the perfect diet is. I think it, it differs from person to person. And I also get that people will be like, oh, you're a vegan? Oh, but you feed your dog, like, ground-up salmon. So, like, you're not so holy and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Um, I don't think it's possible to be perfect from a moral perspective in terms of how you approach food. And I don't do it for that reason or with that idea. I think for me it's like a confluence of the ecology you know, it's, I think it's better for the earth if people aren't eating so much meat. My body responds well to it. Maybe not everybody's does, but I'm, I don't need meat. Like, I'm fine. I've been without it since I was 20. Um, and then I'm trying to think of what else it would be. It's like the ecology, the economics Those are of it. Those pretty good reasons. Yeah, and so it's like, and I also, I think mostly, I just, I just need to be done. I can't think about it too much. I want to settle on something that feels reasonably good and responsible 
and then just like get on with my life <laughs> uh, because I'm too reactive to all of this stuff. Like if there's a story on the internet about health related shit, I am a sucker for it and it fucks with my head. Mm. You know, I'll click through and read about it and it'll be like, oh my God, like I drank, you know, I drink red wine, I think, because somebody told me that it's good for your heart on on the internet once, you know, it's like that kind of thing. As an alcoholic, I mean, like, that just makes me fucking <laughs> die of laughter. I'm laughing inside. You don't hear me, but I'm laughing. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, so I want to ask you about like, like my perception of your book or like one of my perceptions of your book, knowing you a little bit, uh, is that I feel like in milk fed, you are in like, like exercising, like wish fulfillment in a lot of different ways. Like in some sense, I was thinking to myself, like, this is like the world or this is a, a world like truly built according to um, Melissa's wishes. Like you built a kind of dream world. I guess every novelist is doing that. But, you know, I think of it from a food perspective. Like you created this character, Miriam, who gets to sort of be and behave in ways that I think you might wish you could or would. Um, I think in terms of like, you know, uh, relationship to body, you know, to have even if it's from Miri or from uh, Rachel's perspective, it might not be exactly how Miriam feels, but you know, through in, in Rachel's eyes, like mm -hmm. this is a person who has a freedom and a sense of liberation that she wishes she could have. Uh, and then um, I also felt like there were gender, there was gender wish fulfillment. Like there's a, this is a very feminine, like defiantly feminine book um, in a cool way. And men do not make out well in this story. Uh, I feel like Mr. Schwabel is the only like redeemable male in the book. And, uh, oh, that's it, interesting. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm like, you know, Jace, eh, you know, like he's kind of a nice guy, but he's sort of a douche. He's like, yeah, the, he wears multiple bracelets. He looks like he's about to go fight in it. Jace is an actor character who Rachel <laughs> is forced to contend with who like, um, you know, he, 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 to describe Jace, He's the kind of man who's always wearing a fedora, even if he's not wearing a fedora. <laughs> so, you know, but then there's the, then there's also age. Like Rachel's 24. She's like at that great sweet moment of like young adulthood when you have like maximum freedom, you know, maximal freedom. 
Um, so I could just feel you have it like that would be a fun world for you to play in, I feel like. And it would allow you to sort of it's like a, it's like you created a laboratory, like certain parameters for your laboratory. And then you got to play around inside of it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I feel like this book definitely was like from the soul. You know what I'm saying? Like it it came from the soul. And also, too, there's magic. Right. right. Like there's the mysticism. I mean, yeah, it's all my great loves. There's like a magic Chinese restaurant where you get like this poo poo platter of delight. <laughs> I mean, and then you get fingered under the table. I mean, like what <laughs> more? Yes, Brad. Yes. Yeah. No, you're speaking. Be, you're speaking yeah. of the uh, the golden dragon in the, the golden book. dragon. My my dream, which the golden dragon is is a Chinese restaurant that, uh, well, it's a it's a Chinese American restaurant. It's like Polynesian vibes, you know. It's like it's like a Chinese. It's kind of like tiki vibes. Chinese d- restaurant. Does it exist in real life? Well, when I no, uh, not at all. There actually is a restaurant in Los Angeles called the Golden Dragon, which I didn't know. And then the fact checker was like, "Uh, do you want to change the name of your restaurant?" And I was like, "No." Um, because they didn't want it to be like the wrong golden dragon. I don't know. You know, the fact checker, fact checker is kind of like a traffic cop. Like they have to like, which I, I respect, but they, you know, they have to like get a certain, they have to find a certain, create a certain amount of like, you know, tickets for each round of like reading through the thing. But so, or proofreader or whatever. But, um, so the golden dragon is sort of, is inspired by like my, it, uh, when I was in college, I used to go uh, in Davis Square, Massachusetts. I went to Tufts University, um, which a lot of people think is in New Jersey, but it's in Massachusetts. Um, and I would go to this place called Yee's Cocktail Lounge or Yee's, Co- Yee's Village, Yee's Village and Cocktail Lounge. And it was a little slice of fucking heaven, okay? It was, it was um, they had all the tiki drinks, you know, they and like they had all the scorpion bowls, and then they had like really shitty Chinese food, but like delicious, like 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 mu- like really greasy mushu and things like that. So the Golden Dragon, I think, takes some pages from Yee's, which no longer exists, and also from um, in the book Marjorie Morningstar, there is a scene um, at a Chinese restaurant that has it's like a magical sort of mid-century uh, Chinese American. Um, vibes from that and then also from um my imagination so i'd say it's sort of a hybrid yeah it's a hybrid fantasy yeah and i think uh i forgot to mention too like another part of like you know like speaking of um wish fulfillment or playing with this idea of liberation and indulgence you know those scenes in the chinese restaurant (laughs) like they're so decadent like there's so much food coming to the table these drinks that uh rachel and miriam are drinking are like the size of fish bowls which I have to imagine as somebody who's sober for a long time, you must have had fun with that, right? Like just. Well, it's always funny that like, because my, so far my two, in my novels, my two female protagonists aren't alcoholics. And I'm always, it's always interesting because I'm just like, oh, she just enjoys a nice drink, you know? Because I can't, I can't give my characters all my problems. You know, they can maybe each take on, like, you know, they can each take on one to two, but you know, they can't have the full, the full buffet. Um, so yeah, I limit that, but yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's just deliciousness, you know, it's like fucking Polynesian punch and daiquiris and all this crazy ass shit and the dragon balls and the blue Hawaiian. I mean, I love all that like mid-century Hollywood retro kitsch tiki nostalgia. Like I love that stuff. So that was really fun to put in there. 
also like the abundance of food and that the food is really delicious, even though it's a kosher restaurant, because kosher Chinese can be hit or miss, you know, kosher food can be hit or miss, but that it's delicious. And then we've got a golden dragon, like squirting steam. We've got neon lights. I mean, it's everything I really, that is the universe. I want to live at the golden dragon. That's it. And I feel like too, like you had so much fun writing. Like there's great food writing in this book. Like it's very sensual. Like, um, how do I even describe this? But like, you know, you can taste the food. Like you're really going into it almost like you're writing. Uh, it's like Ruth Reichel or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, you really indulge. And I get I me. Mean, it's, it's a natural creative choice because the book is so much about food and um, indulgence and consumption, you know? And so uh, I'm the disordered eaters, Ruth Reichel. Yeah. Like I'm the Ruth Reichel who I'm going to take you to Seven Eleven. <laughs> I'm going to get to go on a bender, but it's going to be at Seven Eleven. You know, it's going to be like the microwavable, like chef Boyardee. It's going to be, you know, the hostess cupcake. Like it's going, I'm like a down market Ruth Reichel. <laughs> Well, I want to talk to you. Okay, so this is a natural uh, place to ask you about this because I've noticed in our, you know, our many lunches over the years and, you know, you, like, we'd sit down at a table, like, we usually, we'll go to some vegetarian restaurant or something and uh, I guess, like, you, I mean, I don't, I never recall noticing, like, you order something, usually, I guess, a salad, but then I also remember you often talking, and this is kind of reflected in the book, about loving prepackaged foods that are like contained. And so, you know, that they have like a calorie count listed on them. Basically it takes all the guesswork out. Love. That's it. I'm a lot like Rachel. So the character of Rachel had like a, what is, what was like a pronounced eating disorder in high school, right? Like what could be diagnosed as anorexia, right? Like she like stopped getting her period. She grew fur. Um, you know, she was always freezing like the, she restricted to the point of like physical harm to self when she recovers, quote unquote, because I feel like when she recovers, she's sent to a nutritionist and the nutritionist starts to add calories back to her diet in a very mathematical way. Cause as an anorexic, Rachel was very sure of exactly how many calories she was getting. So mathematically, Rachel does add back those calories. She gets her period back. She doesn't grow. She doesn't have fur anymore. She's not, um, you know, she doesn't have to like stay in the bathtub for three hours because she's so cold. So like scientifically or mathematically or health wise, one could say that she has recovered. However, the math, the, the, the thought processes, the ways of reducing the world into a mathematical equation, which is, it's, I think eating disorders are like a religion, right? It's a way of organizing existential doubt. It's a worldview. It's a way of organizing and feeling like you have some control over an otherwise random world. Um, that did not go away for Rachel. And, um, you know, and I think it's interesting too, just especially, you know, I was talking about the self, self-love industrial complex. I think a lot of times there are modalities of like, there's a vision of like recovery, let's say in food, in food related for food related stuff where it's like, or just in general, you know, like you get well, or you arrive at some place of like resolution. Right. And, and my experience is that it's actually like a daily thing because you're confronted with food every day. Right. It's not like food stuff 
food issues are not like alcoholism. Like you can live without alcohol, you know, for your whole life. You can't, you have to eat. Same with love issues. You have, we're in, we encounter human beings every day. So it's, it's different. And I think that to paint it as a journey of, as like a, a place where there's a final destination or a sense of completion would be not the whole story in my experience, you know, that rather it is, it is an ongoing flux and like a navigation of one's relationship. And there are certain people ask like, well, where'd you do your research on eating disorders? And I'm like, honey, I have a fucking PhD. Like, do you know how much information, like, I don't even remember like what the date of the revolutionary war is, but I can tell you like how many calories are in like a triangle of subway cheese. You know what I'm saying? Like the amount of useless information right. stored. Right. I like can't do shit on jeopardy. But, like, take me to Panda Express and I'll tell you, like, every fucking, like, from the egg roll to, like, the teriyaki chicken, what's going on. <laughs> do you do you think about health? I mean, because, like, if you're eating, like, protein bars, I guess they're, I mean, they're okay. I guess you could survive on them, but they're not, like, or, you know, Panda Express or going to 7-Eleven and buying a bunch of prepackaged foods. Like, that stuff is processed and isn't necessarily super healthy. Does that factor in or it's a calorie count? Not even at all. Not health. I hate to say it. I hate, but I have a very like early 2000s snack wells, diet, junk food, <laughs> trash right. diet. My like, I mean, look, I'm sitting here. Look what's on my nightstand. I've got Nicorette chewed up. I've got Coke Zero. Uh -huh. Okay. This is like. Um, I w for lunch, you know, I'll probably have, um, I'll have some yogurt cause I like a lot of protein, but I'll have like cereal and then a bunch of Splenda dumped in that shit. Like cancer. I just pretend it doesn't. I just pretend that the fake sweetener cancer link, like I like doesn't apply, you know, doesn't. I, but see, here's the thing. I feel like I'm like much more careful about like eating like, you know, whole foods and putting yes. things ortho. being, being, thing, yeah, being or, yeah, orthorexic and putting things that are from the earth in my body. And I'm going to croak, you know, long before you, you're going to, you're going to live to be like 120 with all this Splenda in your body. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but I'm definitely not what you'd call farm to table. Let's no. put it that way. I'm like trash can to table. <laughs> You're very farm to table, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I like shit in wrappers, you know, like I like my, I don't know how to cook. Everything I eat is microwaved. I mean, it all goes under that like weird light. Um, you know, it's just, no, my diet is disgusting actually. Like it, from a health perspective, it's not great. Um, but from a, okay. I think about this a lot. So, um, like in the 60s, they didn't have like fake cakes. You know what I'm saying? Or like locale ice cream. They like you either ate the real thing or you didn't have it. Um, and now we have this whole world of like fake foods that like technically to someone who loves himself probably does taste like a sponge with chocolate spray painted on it. But to me who lacks that self-love feels like just the biggest party. Yeah. Included. Yeah. Seasoned I, I, with a lack of self-respect. <laughs> I think like, you know, people like will mock me because I'll be like eating like, you know, my dairy-free ice cream or, but like what I always argue is that I wouldn't know the difference. I mean, I guess if I really sat there and tasted the two, like regular ice cream, delicious, but it hurts my stomach. I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. Oh, 
Um, like dairy free ice cream, also delicious. Like I don't think it's like that. Like why do, is cow milk really that critical? I guess to some people it is. Like the taste and the flavor is just you know. But I don't. I'm not that wrapped up in it. To me, it's just like oh, it's sweet, it's cold, it's delicious. It's a nice little treat at the end of the of the day. Uh, you know, the same thing is true for like I I love like vegan meats. <laughs> Like people will be like, These no, are good. no, like, like, um, I was talking to Megan Boyle about this. I don't know if it was on the show or if it was like, while we were like getting ready for the show, but we were laughing about our love of, uh, these vegan sausages that are called, um, what are they called? I'm forgetting the brand name, but they're fucking delicious. I love them. And vegan sausages. I don't know the difference. Like, I, I guess if you put down an actual, like, you know, pig sausage bloody <laughs> it would With be different ghosts, maybe ghosts, it would the, maybe the it would have like more like maybe it would be more savory and flavorful but you know i don't know i i'm very capable of being like perfectly happy with like the fake thing do you know what i'm saying like do you really need to have the 100 calorie version of cake you can have the diet cake version it's still delicious right well i think a human being who like um you know, doesn't reduce their self-worth into, uh, like, they'd be like, yes, like, I like the taste of, also, but, but you have to think about this too. I mean, you haven't had a real sausage in like 20 years. It's been a while. Yeah. So, you know, the suffering gives it a lot of flavor. The animal (laughs) suffering really lends it a certain je ne sais quoi. Uh, Yeah, no. um, No, but I get get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, that's how I am with like, I'm like, if I can eat this chocolate-favored sponge for 100 calories, why would I have the 500 cal? But I think not everyone is like, you know, there are some people who like fucking feel very passionately about bacon and are like, would not be willing to do what you're doing. And, you know, and and there's some people who um, I think – are, why why would you have the weird ass substitute when you can have like the real thing you know with the, with these weird ass like diet muffin tops that I eat I mean my diet's very strange also here's the other thing you are receptive to pain in your body right you're like I'm lactose intolerant the amount of like fart causing foods that like literally like the amount of like weird fake fibers and fake sugars that I eat like zero respect for my body you know zero respect I guess for anyone around me I mean <laughs> it's it, yeah um I was thinking like about uh, people people loving bacon and how many times over the years I've had people tell me like I just can't give up bacon because bacon's like the indulgent meat it's like so delicious I just want to say for the record and I think I probably said this before I think bacon is delicious. Like, I I think people sometimes think of people who have maybe like a more austere diet or whatever you want to call it like me, that we somehow don't, like we're so repulsed by by meat that we just think it's disgusting. Like, I actually think it tastes great. Yeah. I just like, I can't get past the animal thing, you know? That's beautiful. Okay. That's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? That's That's a bit of a sacrifice. You know, you're making a choice. Yeah. 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 No, I love that though. I mean, Nikki, so I was vegan and vegetarian at various points for like a while um, of my life, at periods of my life. And 
I kind of flitted in and out, but there would be like two or three years where I was vegan. Right. And then I would like relapse. And so, um, and, but so, uh, my husband's uncle Frank from Staten Island, my dad's, my dad's name is Frank. It's very, I mean, you, the Italians, there's just like, everyone's either a Frank or Tony, right? Right, right. I didn't know any Frank or Tonys, and now I know like 50 of them. (laughs) Nikki. Like so many Franks and Tonys. I also had never been to so many hospitals, beds, or funerals. Yeah, yeah. You guys really know how to bring like the, the operatic like drama, like the life, the death, the illness. Yeah, yeah. Show up. My my uh, grandfather, now you know, long deceased, was a butcher. Frank was a oh butcher. My oh my god, that's amazing. He and his Italian brothers, who were first generation Sicilians, had a uh, butcher shop called the Listy Meat Market. In, Where? In a small town in South Louisiana, down in the swamp. I think you should rename this podcast the, the... Listy Meat Market. <laughs> I had a T-shirt made with, that said the Listy Meat Market on on it for my dad one Father's Day, like just as a joke. And that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a, um maybe like at the bottom of one of his drawers or something, you know. But I, uh, you know, it wasn't the greatest. It was like one of those like felt letterings, you know, like it wasn't like silk screen properly. So maybe he trashed it. I don't know. Oh, felt was so good. Yeah, that was old but, school. So I, I told, so I told Nikki's uncle Frank, like we were at a Chinese restaurant. And I was, and he's like, you don't want this? You want this? And I'm like, no, I'm vegan. I was vegan at the time. And he's like, what do you mean you're vegan? You don't eat meat? Not even ribs? And it's just <laughs> so funny to me that it would be like somebody would be vegan, but they break for ribs. No, no. I, I've had that conversation like with my Southern, I mean, in the South, a vegan in Louisiana. Are you kidding me? Like in my family, I am considered just a, like a screwball um, lunatic, you know, because there's all that seafood and the fried food and the nobody like talk about a place that indulges and doesn't necessarily give a fuck about like what the consequence, what the, like the ancillary consequences might be, you know, it's really truly about the sensual experience of eating. How, how does it taste? Is If it tastes good, it's good. You know, go get yourself a fried shrimp po, uh, po boy or whatever it is. And, you know, so for me, going down to the south i will say this um that is the one place where i will eat seafood simply because i'm usually staying with family or i'm with family and i have a policy that if i'm staying with somebody if i'm their guest and they serve me something i'll eat it um i can't stand the idea of asking somebody to make me a special meal because of my particular diet you know i just feel like when i'm the guest in your house like if you put something in front of me i'll eat it and plus Amazing. like plus i like the taste like i like seafood you know like it's it's not that i don't like how it tastes i just uh i think of the fish like wiggling and you know all that kind of stuff but anyway i get yeah, that no, I, fish... I get the whole i get the whole uncle frank like scene i i totally i know that conversation that's why yeah the pescatarians are funny i'm like oh so you're like prejudiced against fish like <laughs> it's like well the chicken uh, it like should live however that's also why when people are like yeah like in certain countries they eat dogs i'm like well you eat fucking cows like i don't i don't know i don't know that i discriminate you know like i think i'm equally i mean i don't know that i'd want like dog jerky per se on a personal level but like theoretically it's kind of all part and parcel of the same kingdom well yeah you can reverse that argument you know because people are like whoa 
you know, mean as Bobo. And I'm like, but you would not eat your dog, would you? And they go, no. And I'm like, but you'll eat a pig, which is more intelligent than your dog. So like, how are we, how are we like parsing this? Do you know what I'm saying? It's just cultural. Like it just happens to be the case that like, it's considered like a crime to eat a dog in America. But if you're in, you know, somewhere in Asia and somebody serves you dog jerky, it would be like, yeah, you know, uh, no, no big deal. They sell it everywhere. Um, so I want to ask you about anger um, and revenge, which I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this about this book or if it even entered your mind when you were writing it. But like, is there any emotional component to the genesis of the idea and then, you know, the execution on the page that has to do, you think, with like anger at the world, anger at food, anger at the constraints that humans have to live under or that they force themselves to live under. Like, did you feel a sense of like having some kind of like artistic vengeance uh, mm. over food? Do you know what I'm saying? Interesting. Um, that's a really good question. Well, I do know like anger is definitely a feeling that I don't, permit myself a lot like I feel like I don't have enough self-esteem to be angry because I usually turn everything inward like I'm more homicidal or more suicidal than homicidal because I don't feel like I have the self-esteem to be homicidal (laughs) so I will say that number one I I mean everyone all humans have anger right it's like one of the primary emotions like we all experience anger we all experience envy joy sadness but it's not one I think just in, in the same vein of being detached from one's appetites or repressing one's sexual appetites or the felt right you can perform sexuality you can be like you know i mean you can fake a million orgasms or you can like look like somebody in a porn but like you might not be feeling any of it so i think there's a difference between the felt and the performed but so with anger anger is something that i think i'm scared of in myself i don't know if i fully permit i think i've also heard that i mean i think depression is a disease however I've heard, and and maybe it's, you know, part and parcel, that depression is anger turned inward. Um, And I would say in my case, that's probably true. Like the the sort of shamey self-hatred feelings, those are probably anger that's sort of um, mushed down. Um, But, you know, I definitely, hmm, I, you know, I, I, uh, it's a really good question. And I don't know. I would think I would have to think about that. Well, I think like, I'll give you an example in the book. You know, we yeah, talked, we talked, example. we talked a little bit about gender and, um, the, like the, the male characters that you've rendered in the book. Um, and there aren't that many characters in the book. Like mm-hmm. one of the things I admire about it is how artfully constructed it is. Like you really do have these like set pieces. You have the office environment, you have the apartments, you have the this show sucks like comedy club there's the golden dragon you know what i'm saying there's a limited like constellation of places that the characters venture to and where the entire story unfolds and likewise you know you have a set number of uh male characters who embody some things that are like ripe for satire and i think yes. you and you and i can both relate you know like the the uh, manager bro <laughs> like hollywood manager bro like it's a you know it's a very recognizable type to me it's you know it's rooted in truth you know and deeply and then also like the actor bro you know like that guy 
you know the way you describe him like his he's got like the 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 undercut which is like the 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 hairstyle of the day for like the hollywood actor bro and it's like how do you describe it it's like it's like nazi on the sides like and like a a skyward floof on the top yeah yeah and which uh, by the way i mean i love like I think I am seeking revenge on that haircut because that haircut gets me. Like, you put that haircut on, like, a tree, and I want to have sex with that tree. Like, I am a fucking... I am a, like, basic-ass bitch for that haircut. I love that. I wish I could do it, but I my hairline, I'm you know, I'm too old. You're kind of moving towards it, though. It's like you're you're pointing in that direction. Vaguely, but it doesn't work for you. You need to have different kind of hair, and you need to have, like, that flat, like, hairline, you know, like the The straight... The straight topper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I felt like, you know, you're sending up these guys. I could feel, like... I could feel female, uh, like, anger at living and working within a male-dominated, like, patriarchal system. Hmm. Um, I could feel some of that. And I don't know. I mean, I guess it's natural. But it's also, like, uh, you know, the satire. Like, you're skewering these characters and uh, deservedly. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's a proportionate satire. But I just, like, I didn't I, – I didn't – I couldn't tell how much of it was just like a natural outflow of your creative and storytelling process, like understanding this world and how much of it was like, maybe like a preconceived idea that you wanted to integrate into the book. Like, was this part of the conceit? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I think there's probably like a rich history of like literary writers or book writers, like, coming to Hollywood or like, I mean, I didn't move here to become a screenwriter. I moved here because my husband's health, but it's sort of like within it, it just sort of like, well, you and I, you and I were, you were a big part of that. You know, you were like, why don't you make so sad today? Something I'm like, what do you mean? It is something. It's a Twitter. And you're like, no, no, make it a show. And that was how, you know, that was how my whole thing started without, if you hadn't suggested that I would probably wouldn't be doing. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So it's your fault. Um, But so, um, and if we hadn't been working together, but um, you know, I think there is like a rich history of people just write, writing a book is so solitary. Hollywood, it's the opposite, right? There's so many chefs and with every chef, with every human, there's such ripe potential for stupidity. And, um, so sorry, there's a, there's a truck on my block. Is that no, picking up on the microphone? It's, okay. all, it's all good. Okay. Um, I'm like, sorry, there's a truck. Um, but so it's really fun to make fun of. And my new favorite element of Hollywood and the world that I think is silly is like the, um, the commercialization and the clickbaitization of feminism and social justice. Like I fucking like social justice and feminism as a product, as a marketable product. I, I, I love it. I find it hilarious i saw i felt like it really started with feminism you know i call it mcfeminism um like a big feminism right like you know like the ruth bader ginsburg tote bag of the world you know that kind of thing and it's like it's just so silly and it's so american right to feel like i'm doing something you know because i with because i made this consumer choice or yes or like exactly because i use certain language so i knew that i would be able to get away with making fun of this um monetization and corporatization of um feminism and also to some extent social justice issues uh if i chose uh this white bro 
I also had a lot of inspiration because like a lot of my managers and stuff have been these white bros, right? And so that, so I was like, let's go, you know? And I'm like, he's bald. He's a former frat bro. Uh, he's got a fleck of veal meatball on his lip and he's talking about privilege because he just had twin daughters and now he thinks he's a feminist. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's delicious. Yeah, yeah. It's all right uh, there. Yeah. So I think it's more, um, I think less anger and more uh, like a, per- I feel perplexed. I feel baffled. I feel perplexed that I'm like, do others not see that, that like some some of the disingenuousness of turning feminism into a product and like it's fine like that's fine i'm not like feminism's guardian or anything but i'm like let's at least like acknowledge the silliness well and also like you know for somebody who's so um immersed and successful on social media um you know you talked about so sad today but for people who might for the four people who don't know like you've been tweeting like you know uh, several times a day from that account for what is it now a decade or maybe Almost, yeah. Almost a decade, and you have, what, over a million followers, probably? Yeah, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Like, I wish that I wasn't, but... Well, um, but I mean, hey, that's... Like, like... To the dopamine. It's like, you have a choice. Two roads diverge in a wood. You feel a feeling. You can either, A, sit with the feeling, process the feeling, or B, you can, like, make something funny about it and tweet it and get dopamine. Like, okay. I so, I want to ask... I, I, was, I meant to ask you about this later, but since, since it came up, I'll ask you about it now. Um... I think the first question, the basic question is a compositional question because you're so prolific on Twitter and, you know, you're basically joke writing. I'm curious about how you write them. Do they just come out like, 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 uh, fully formed? Do you have to sit there and like noodle with it or do you, do they just occur to you? Are you just somebody for whom these sort of funny thoughts are occurring? It's very simple and you just kind of, uh, put them up there and that's it? Or are you laboring over these jokes and trying to make sure you get the phrasings right? And do you see what I'm saying? Like, what's the process? What does the process look like for you? How much work are you putting into this? So for, so I have two accounts and I have a Melissa Broder account and I have tried to be precious and clever and joke. And, you know, I mean, for years I like, I was like, I want this to be like, you know, I want to be a, I'm going to make me a star. And like, it's fine. So sad today is literally vomit. And that's the one that people have responded to. So sad today. I I don't craft. I don't, I mean, yes, I make, I, there's humor, but like, it's far less. I mean, so sad today started like the origin, Brad knows this, but like I worked in an office, I was going through a cycle of particularly harrowing, um, panic attacks with underlying depression, but the, I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to like stay in the job. Like I wasn't gonna be able to like keep my ass in the seat, literally like, um, and, um, so I just started kind of tweeting into the void for, and I didn't want to talk about this stuff on my personal account. Cause it was so like, you know, I'm like, this is poetry, which I don't think it is, but I, you know, I was more precious about it. So I just started randomly tweeting into the void. I followed like two weird tweeters I loved weird Twitter, RIP weird Twitter. It, it's, it's not the same now, but, um, I followed like two weird tweeters and I guess one of them followed me back and like retweeted me. And then that's how it all started. It was just like this sort of like empty vessel and it was anonymous for years, right? Like I love the anonymity, but, um, 
So I think what was once probably a creative impulse and maybe some sort of healthy coping mechanism or healthy-ish has now just turned into like my addiction to the dopamine. You know what I'm saying? And it's like my still, like a refusal to feel all the feelings and, and, but I mean, it's fine. I'm not going to pathologize it, but it is what it is. But I am like, I can't believe I'm still tweeting from this fucking account. Hey, but, but, and this is my next question. Like, it's been a boon to your career, I have to believe, or at least it's a significant piece. Yeah. Um, like when we think about the modern media landscape, uh, publishing, film and television, whatever it happens to be, like if you have a million Twitter followers, that's going to get right. people's attention like that, like to have that megaphone and to have the ability to reach that many people with, you know, your smartphone any time of day. You know, when it comes to the publication of a book or it comes to the adaptation of one of your books for the screen, um, I have to believe gatekeepers like consider that a positive. Like, has that been your experience of it? Or is that your conception of it? Yeah, I mean, I think like in publishing, you know, I so I worked as a book publicist um, before I moved to California. So I worked at Penguin as a book publicist for 10 years and I've been in California now for seven um, so I haven't worked in publicity for seven. But even then, we were talking about, like, you know, does the author have a platform? Right. You know, do they have a platform? Right. And, like, because of that word platform, you'll get, like, some, like, 60-year-old guy, like, signing up for Facebook the first time, like, the night before his book comes out. <laughs> and then, like, you'll get the, like, thank you for friending me. Here is my self-published book on, you know what I'm saying? Like, the word plat, like, I don't like the word content. I don't like the word platform. I hate the, you know what I hate? Creatives. Yeah. Creatives. Yeah. It's like they're, they're creatives. I'm like, what does that even, it's like, what does that even mean, creatives? Right. Yeah. And the, yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, like, I'm off, I'm, I'm, uh, like, fa like semi famously off social, like, at least if you listen to this show. Um, but I think that, like, for the rare person who's able to, like, go viral and really get, um, like a massive following. Like if you amass a following, it works for you. You know, at least like you have the satisfaction yes. of knowing that like your account and the time you've spent on Twitter have, have yes. uh, returned you. There's a return on your investment. Whereas like for the vast majority of people, the only people cashing in are like the executives at Twitter. <laughs> you well, that's, know? well, that's a whole other issue, but yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I'm like, I'll, like when the account, I think it just got a million followers like in 2020. I forget when it was, but it was like a couple months ago. And I, I had mixed feelings because part of me was like, oh my God, like this is cool. This is something I literally did completely myself. You know, it's just a voice, right? There's no tits. Like it's not, like, it's, <laughs> I did this with my voice right. and my depression right. <laughs> um, and my like inability to like sit with myself. Um, so on, that's on the one hand. But then the flip side, I'm like, well, there's a lot of stupid shit that like amasses millions of followers, you know, like actually most things that have millions of followers are, are dumb. So it's mixed, but, um, nah, but, but so sad today is like, it's art. I think, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a kind of poetry and performance art or something. And yeah, I mean, um, and it's comedy, it's like dark comedy. Like it's a very, it's brilliant. You know, it's just one of these ideas that worked and it captures something about, I think, people's experience of life, but also their experience of online life. You well, know, it came from the heart. And I think the fact that it was anonymous allowed me a freedom that I could take off a mask because I was wearing the mask of anonymity, you know? So like I, when you're wearing, I mean, if you work in an office, you know, it's like you, like, 
you wear these i mean in life we all we all are wearing all these masks all the time right like and when i put on the mask of anonymity i was able to take off the other masks and talk about something that and i even talked about this in the so sad today book that you know i have this account that's like literally like it's very focused on on one element of a human of the not the human experience, but of a human's experience that others also identify with, which is this depression and fear. And Brad, I remember when I had a panic attack when you and I were out to lunch somewhere or we were working. I had a panic. I wrote about this in the So Sad Today book. I had a panic attack with you when you were like newly working together. And I was like, well, this means I can never have another one. And like, I would be at like, an interview with a journalist about the So Sad Today book, scared that I was going to have a panic attack and that I would be judged, which is so bizarre because we're there talking about an account that's about anxiety and depression. But it's like there's something about the disembodied nature of a tweet that, especially when it's anonymous, it's not anymore, but it still has a pink avatar, does in my face. That feels so much safer for me to reveal myself than the actual vulnerability of being a human being in a body who is powerless, you know, at times over her brain and her physiology. Yeah, I consider it like, I mean, like, but like, you know, I remember that. I think we were in Venice. I want to say we were. Yes. That day. And I was like, I got to go. I was like, I got to go. Yeah. And I didn't know. I was like, I'm trying to like navigate, but like, I've always been moved by the, um, like the resilience of you who have been dealt some tough cards, like, you know, like uh, dealing with addiction, dealing with food stuff, dealing with depression and anxiety and these panic attacks, like you found a way to, to make it work for you. <laughs> um, there's, a, I, I feel, I guess, some sense of triumph on your behalf that you were able to channel it into this thing that's reached so many people and makes people happy and laugh and makes them feel less alone. Like you could do worse. You know what I'm saying? You could, could do, do worse. Yeah. So I hope you see some of that. I hope you view it that way, at least partially. I think that's going to be my new self-esteem mantra. <laughs> I could do worse. You could. You're doing great. You're doing great. And Thanks, Brad. Um, I'm going to leave this feeling so good. Do you, like, do you see yourself continuing that Twitter feed for life? I feel like you almost have to. Like, I feel like it's your leg, like, part of your legacy. Like, that I, mean, thing, I don't want to. It's a lot of work. But... I'm addicted. No, it's not work. It's the opposite. Okay. So here's, I have a new addiction and I'm in love with it. It's okay. called block puzzle game. Okay. It is now block puzzle game. Isn't a certain game. Block puzzle game is a type of game. If you search block puzzle game on like iTunes or whatever, the store, you know, like the game store, um, it's free. It's like, you'll get like a hundred different types of these games. What it is, is it's sort of like Tetris, but like a menopausal version where there's no like time crunch. I'm upset. My sister came here for Christmas. She wanted a Sega for Christmas, like an old school Sega. We started playing Tetris. I was up all night playing it. I, I love Tetris. I love Tetris. Oh, the orga. Okay. Get yourself some block puzzle game. So now... Um, what, what is it? Is it? Is it on your phone? It's a, it's called... Yeah, it's a phone game that's like a tetris game. Okay. But it's just like a crap version. You know, it's like... There's a million different types. There's like wood or whatever. They call it block... It's called block puzzle game. I, I call it BPG. Okay. But, um, but block puzzle, yeah, there's like a bunch of them. It's a block puzzle game or puzzle block game. It's it's Tetris basically, but without the time and the, so it's like really soothing. It's like just like the feeling of breaking the blocks, but without yeah. the time crunch. It's uh -huh. like, I'm so deep in this shit. But now, 
So I like asked one of my mentors, I was like, okay, so I feel like the block puzzle's starting to like, you know, cause I've been dealing with a lot of shit with my dad. Like I, you know, like I, my dad, my dad's been in the ICU. Like I was like, I feel, but I feel like the block puzzle is definitely starting to be like take over my life a little bit. And she was like, Melissa, your dad's in the ICU. You have a book. Come, like give yourself the block puzzle. And I was like, Rebecca says I can play the block puzzle, you know, <laughs> with impunity. Well, fast forward a month. I can't do anything without the block puzzle now. When, when I hear the words block puzzle game, I, you know how like junkies describe that when they know they're going to be going to score, they already feel better. Right. All I have to do is hear the words block puzzle game <laughs> and a narcotic calm comes over my body. But the point is, I think block puzzle probably stimulates some of the same dopamine receptors in my brain that Twitter does. Um, so I think it's probably good. Well, not good. I think it's a nice distraction from the world of Twitter. Like I, I feel that it is, it is hitting those same slot machines. But after I tweet, like there's a, there's a living thing in the world like at the end of block puzzle like i'm always like wait there's nothing right <laughs> but it's kind of cool to be doing something that's not about it's like a mandala it's like you it's like you create a beautiful mandala and then you blow it away, like blow all the sand away i blow exactly and so much of what i do i feel like is like so like achievement oriented and just like how do i measure myself and block puzzle i feel like in the end may be healthy for me because it's like I'm getting worse. I'm not getting better at this game. I also don't give a shit if I'm better. I just love the feeling of the blocks breaking. So this may either be the best or worst thing that ever happened to me. I haven't figured it out yet. I mean, in the in the the realm of things that are not good for us, I think block puzzle is probably lower on the hierarchy of toxic events, right? Definitely. I mean, right. That's what that's what we say. However, you know, when you find yourself like not able to have a conversation with a human being on the phone without block puzzle, it's like, you know, you're like, all right, I like I I know my intent, right? Like I know what I'm using it for. I know. I know where block puzzle is settled in. Well this n that's the thing though. And this is like about the block puzzle. puzzle. This is like I think I think you're speaking to something right now that gets to the heart of um why your work on Twitter and on the page resonates so well is that you have such like a great degree of self-awareness. I think part of it is born from having been, um, you know, in sobriety for a long time and being in communities around sobriety where people talk about their insides openly um, and in community, which is a rare experience among humans. I think, I think maybe we talked about this last time you were on the show, like the, the envy that I can sometimes feel for people who have <laughs> like that, that um, structure, you know, that kind of human structure um, to participate in because, you know, everybody's struggling with one thing or another, whether it's substance or some other emotional upset. And to just have a group to go to where people are actually testifying honestly about really, really difficult stuff, I think gives you an education in your own stuff and in your, your own insights that would be difficult perhaps to access otherwise. And then on top of that, I think there's therapy. I think there's reading. I think some of it's just native intelligence and courage and like a willingness to sort of stare into the abyss or like, you know, sit with the darkness or whatever. But, you know, I think I've told you before, I've tried to like describe what you're doing. It's like you're kind of like a cartographer or like a map maker um, when it comes to human suffering. Like you're able to, you're like able to map the terrain. Um, but you do it also with humor, which I think is critical um, because it's like that spoonful of sugar, you know, it's like if you were just 
talking about suffering accurately, but without the humor, people might be like, oh, well, she's right. But like, damn, that's heavy. You know, like I think the humor is a way to digest, you know, since we're on the yeah. topic of food. But I don't know. Like, I think like that, like, am, am I hitting close to anything that feels like a target? Like maybe it's yeah. harder. Maybe it's hard for you to see or or easy for you to see. But I think people who appreciate your work, I, hopefully they would get what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's like I never talk about um, like the I, I'm very open about my sobriety. I never talk about like my recovery modalities publicly. Um, but I always say like I'm so sad to I'm like, if you want to email me, I'll talk to you more about it. But I feel like just a reverence for like the the people and processes and the ways that I got and stay sober. And so I really respect like um, the tradition of sort of that I am not a representative of that. Right. Like that. Um, so I, I, I wish I could talk about that. Well, I don't really wish I could talk about that, but, um, you know, but I, but my, let's just say my, my sober life, like my life in that realm has been the richest gift of my life, you know, and continues to be the richest gift of my life. Um, and has absolutely had an impact, um, on the ability to be honest, my ability to be honest with others and with myself, you know, I'll say that. Well, and I hope I didn't breach anything. I tried to talk. I'm, you know, it's always like a language challenge. When Fine, you others have done worse. Yeah, you know, I just, it's like... Uh, you did good. Oh, yeah. I'm just trying to like tap dance. Yeah, and, did good. Um, but I, I think, I think you've done the work, you know? I think like... Uh, well, the work's never over. I know, but I'm just saying that like somebody who's able to write about the struggle and human suffering and food issues and whatever it is, you know, whatever, you know, constellation of, um, human struggles that you're dealing with, like you really have gone in there, um, and grappled with it. And I think you work harder and try harder than maybe you sometimes let on or even admit to yourself. But that's something I really admire about you is like, um, you've been through a lot, but you have a lot of courage and you've like faced down a lot of stuff and you do, the work like on an ongoing basis it's not like it's done but like mm -hmm. i don't know i sense a lot of fight in you that you might not necessarily always give yourself credit for so i'm giving mm -hmm. it i'm giving you credit for it <laughs> yeah i mean against my like i have I, it looks to be looking back it appears that i have repeatedly despite uh my best efforts <laughs> otherwise it appears that i have continued to choose the light or choose I mean, I don't want to make it a binary, but choo choose to stay alive, choose to, you know, not, and I have no judgment against, um, against, um, choosing otherwise, you know, or being caught in forced, forced to choose otherwise, you know, but it does. Yes. Looking back, I'm like, wow. Like I, like, it's like, actually I had a tweet about this. I was like, oh, like if I was like, if sixth grade me saw me now, she'd be like, you're still alive. You know, like it baffled that. That's what I'm trying to say. Like it baffles me, you know. Um, but and yes, I I do pretend to. I I don't like to show how much effort I put into things, namely because um, a fear of rejection. Like if I show you that I invested and then I am rejected, all of that investment is being rejected. But if I pretend that it's casual and messy uh -huh. and you're just rejecting something. Now, technically it's the same rejection. So it's really just a game I'm playing with myself, 
But it's like why – so I have this like dumb little podcast thing. It's I don't call it a podcast. I call it a show. But I call it a shodcast because I like didn't – you were like a pod – you know, you were a podcast pioneer. I was like – you know, I didn't want to be one of the fucking people in 2017 who was like, oh, it's my podcast. But um, so I call it a show. But um, it's why I don't use a microphone. It's why I record like shittily in my car and never – I don't want an audio engineer because I'm like – I don't want people, I don't want to, I don't want to try. If I try and it doesn't, and it's shit, then I'm like, oh, well, I tried and it's shit. But this way I'm like, oh, honey, like the shit is intentional. Like, it's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like, yeah. Brad, maybe, so Brad encouraged me to buy a microphone for, for, um, for uh, this, this show. And because I deeply respect Brad, I bought a microphone. I have been evangelizing. Turn it after I'm done. You I'm might. Just that kind of bitch. Yeah. No, I think you should keep it. I've been evangelizing for this, like for most of the pandemic. I think for authors, especially in the age of COVID, when everything is done remotely, if you have a microphone and if you're doing media for a book, for example, and you get like a microphone for like whatever it is, 125 bucks or something, um, the podcast interviews that you do sound so much better, and more people will listen. It's like just a good like sound business investment. It'll come in handy. We'll see. Well, here's the thing. I might have to keep it because uh, I bought it online at Target. And when I entered my email, I wrote Melissa Broder at gmail.dom. So they never emailed me the receipt. And I was on with customer service. So I might not have a receipt. So see, I might be keeping that. I have condemned you. I have condemned you. I have condemned you to owning a microphone. I'm sorry. At gmail.dom. And the guy, like, I'm, like, on with customer service. And I'm, like, really PMS right now. So I was, like, not being as nice as I would like to be. Like, I was just a little curt. Like, I was, like... Excuse me, I didn't receive my online receipt. And they're like, well, let's check the oh, Melissa Broder at gmail.dom. And I was like, fuck. So I am probably my worst version of myself yeah. on an angry customer service call. Like when I feel there's been an injustice or I'm frustrated. <laughs> If I've been on hold for like 40 minutes, like waiting to get my fucking frequent flyer shit figured out, like. I can be a person that I think if the average listener bore witness to it, they would like, I would be canceled. <laughs> I'd never be listened to again. You know, like, I think maybe we all have those moments, but like, what is it about customer service? I think it's maybe the impersonality of it. It's uh, the, and it's like that pent up, like, finally, there is a human being. And you know, technically, you know, that human being. On the other hand, first of all, you know they're a human being with suffering and pain and all. Number two, you know they have absolutely no control over what has just gone wrong. However, it's like I have an audience. Yes. Like I, I've hitched – the boat has hitched – like if you're on a boat and you're like – the boat is like a miss and being like tossed to sea, you know, and, and, and the boat – and you're like when – when you hit shore, you're going to, like, respond to the people who greet you on the shore. Like, even if it wasn't their fault that your ship got fucked up, like, you're going to have a pretty desperate response, you right, know? Right, right, right. That desperation. I found myself on those calls in the past where, like, I guess I like you could call it, like, breaking the fourth wall where I'll be, like, bitching. And then suddenly <laughs> I'll be, like, I'll get self-aware and I'll be, like, and listen, I know that this isn't your fault. I know that you're just the customer service representative who is hired to absorb the like anger, the righteous anger of people like me. And that the, the people who are truly responsible, the executives in your company are using you as a human shield. And I'll say, (laughs) (laughs) and then like, I'll sometimes get like a little bit of affirmation from the cut. Like they'll laugh or they'll be like, 
Okay, because you know they're being recorded. They can't say anything, and I'll try oh. to. I'm trying to like goad them into somehow turning on their higher ups or something. But the human You're, like, field destroying their life. <laughs> I feel bad for them. Like I feel like I genuinely shield. No, but you're. I mean, that's true I though. Know? That's true. Like the people who actually make the kinds of decisions that make like a customer experience truly hellish never have to actually engage with the customers that they're abusing. And they insulate themselves with people that they pay a pittance to sort of sit there all day long, you know, dealing with this. And I don't know. I find the whole thing uh, ghoulish. And I, you know, like I said, it, it, it lowers me as a human being. <laughs> you know, it's ugly. It's ugly when you find yourself being ugly to a stranger who you know. But but sometimes it's like that ball of rage, you know, and, oh. and the 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 entitlement, right? Or like the self... But I mean, you know, something like, I don't know. I mean, like often like, you know, whatever. I was like, Target, you need to rectify this shit. That's what I'm saying. It's, there's been an, this injustice cannot stand. Well then, and I heard the person like checking, like, like trying to type in what my problem was into the computer. It's kind of like, you know, when you ask someone for directions and you realize within like 30 seconds that they don't know where it is either, but they're going to give it their best shot. And you're like, (laughs) you just... Talk about a human shield. You're like, never mind. Like, I don't need you. But you're like, oh, now I got to listen to this person. Give me like, like think about it. Yes, you know, like, yes. yeah. And try it's, to like, look at Google Maps and advise you and, you know. And it's like, honey. Um, okay. I want to ask you about Judaism and spirituality. Like you talked a little bit about this earlier, but I think it it bears going into further because it's a big part of your book. And I think it's probably the most surprising part. Um, based on our personal history, like the food stuff, the sex part of your book, like those themes, like it doesn't, didn't catch me off guard at all. I know that's like sort of your wheelhouse. Um, but Judaism, I mean, I obviously know that you're Jewish and were raised Jewish, but you know, the Miriam character is Orthodox, which for those, uh, out there who are not versed in Judaism is like a different, um, it's like a different level of Judaism, you know, it's a, like you said, like there's a, a certain kind of dress code that is observed and it's like a, it's a stricter, you know, lifestyle than like the reformed Jew or whatever. Uh, you could speak to this better than I, but the, the Rachel character in her relationship with Miriam is exploring her Judaism in a sincere and serious way in the book. And, I would imagine you were doing the same, you know, in writing it and kind of examining these characters. And I just like to hear you talk. Like you said a little bit earlier, you know, earlier that you had sort of been like feeling a, an unexpected or new nostalgia for the Judaism or the Jewish experiences of your youth with your grandparents. And I just like to hear you talk a bit more about that and like where you stand with Judaism now and what's your understanding of it and how you relate to it. Sure. So so my upbringing was definitely more similar to Rachel's than to Miriam's. Like I was much more of what I would call like a mall Jew rather than a Talmud Jew, you know, like I had a bat mitzvah, but it was like my bat mitzvah. Like when I think bat mitzvah, my word association is like Claire Antonini, like got to second with my like crush. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think about like the spirituality of like, it didn't feel super spiritual. You know, I was just upset that, like, somebody hooked up with my crush. So, um, and I think as I've gotten older, like, I don't think I'm a particularly religious, I'm not a religious Jew, and I don't think I'm a particularly necessarily 
Um, I don't have one religion. Like I'm very much under the of the belief that like truth is one and paths are many, which I think is Swami Satchidananda, I think, said that. Um, so my spiritual life, which I do have a very rich spiritual life, um, but it's it consists of rituals that are cobbled together from a variety of traditions. It's very American. It's like a smorgasbord. Um, but there's another quote that's basically like, I don't know who said this, but it's basically like saying like, you know, all the rabbis and the mystics and the priests are all pointing their finger at the same moon. But like, we want to cling to the finger, right? Like we get so focused on the finger. Um, and I think in my 20s, I was definitely like a big finger clinger. Like I was sort of frantically searching outside myself for like this wholeness. And I, I like I was like any psychic or any like astrologer knows more than I do. You know, like they I, I want to fix this broken thing, which is myself. Um, and I thought that spirituality was like. I really imagined it as like I'm on a lotus and like I'm over here and like I feel like I'm on some good like heroiny ecstasy and I can't be hurt. <laughs> and I think that I'm still a seeker, but it's not really like a frantic quest to fix something broken. Like it's more of like an exploratory gathering and kind of like trying different fingers that point me to the moon. Um, I also don't feel like spirituality is necessarily that like the expectation that I'm going to just like be able to live on the moon, right? It's more about like, wait, actually like becoming more okay with being a human, um, you know, and all the imperfections that that entails. So, but when it comes to these fingers, right, like the Jewish laws and the archetypes of God, like have always felt like they have never really super resonated with me. Like I'm not a huge fan of Yahweh. Like he feels very punishing. I feel like I've worked very hard to conceptualize like a higher power for myself or not conceptualize, like deconceptualize a punishing God, right? And just let it be a mystery and like um, that it doesn't, that it, that like it's not somebody that I have to please or who's like a cosmic judge. I, I feel um, the same. I feel the exact same way about the Catholic God of my youth, you know, that yes. kind of, that kind of dogma of my youth that never resonated. And yet I believed it to an extent because I was a kid and the adults in my world were telling me this stuff. Yes. But I've been spent my whole adult life trying to sort of reconfigure that, I think. For yeah, I mean it's it's um it's a great and that's sort of in some ways my perspective not perspective, but I feel like so much for me of like what spirituality, if you want to like use that word, is like an unlearning, not just of like religious beliefs, but like of any of the things that um these th these ideas in the self that are, I think our parents are our first gods, right? And they do the best they can, but they definitely, there's a liturgy there, right? And there's like religions that get imparted. And there's a lot of things that I thought were true about the world that, or were truth that were actually just opinions. And like what, um, do you, can you think of something? Is there, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there an example of something big that like, you know. Well, I mean, I like, I mean, I think this book contends a lot with the question of certitude and, um, you know, I mean, Rachel's mother raises her believing that she has to be skinny in order to be worthy of love. I mean, that is like, right. You know, and, and, and that is an experience that I, um, also had growing up, you know, um, where it really was the religion of my mother's religion, you know, that the body that love was contingent on appearances and um and I don't think I've fully unlearned that yet I mean I don't know if you can, but I've what I have 
done is I have discovered and uncovered that that is not the truth, that that is a perspective. Um, and I think that in itself can be liberating. And maybe sometimes it's just the best we can do, you know, is to realize, oh, that's just a perspective that is not the equivocal, unequivocal? Unequivocal. Unequivocal truth. Um, so you talk about spirituality. Um, we touched uh, – like, you know, delicately on like how sobriety might factor into your spiritual life in practice, yeah. maybe not in theory as much as in practice, you know, the human yeah. part of it. And then, um, like, can you talk about like how, how else you build? I know you're a meditator. That's like part of it. I would imagine, I guess you would qualify that as a spiritual activity. Um, yeah, I think so. like, it's like, I, I kind of get the idea of like piecemealing it. Like you pick like from a buffet, like things that like little pieces that work for you that feel right. And then you build like a mode of living that helps to support you and maybe helps you like remember the finger pointing at the moon or rem remember the moon. <laughs> you know yes, what I'm saying? Every day it takes, you got every day. I forget the fucking moon. I, every day I forget that it's an inside job. I think that something outside of me is going to be the, some shiny thing is going to be the thing. I don't wake up like being like, Oh, I'll just go to God. You know, like I wake up being like, I'm going to go to Twitter and I'm going to make this happen. And I am going to blah, blah, blah. And I'm driven by fear of like not enoughness. Right. And, um, what I call or what, I've heard called like the God shaped hole, right? Like the whole that like, there is no amount of anything that's going to fill it. But actually when I like just go in there, when I just sit, it's actually not so bad. And sometimes it feels pretty nice in there, but I forget that it's not a horrible place to be, you know? And I think meditation um, is a reminder of that because I watch a lot of thoughts go by. And then sometimes at the end I have some respite, right? Sometimes I don't. But, uh, but sometimes I do. I think it also, meditation for me builds in pause. Um, it builds in, like if I can meditate in the morning before I go on the internet, um, it's, it's just a different way of going about things. I'm a little less reactive, you know? Yeah, no, no. I like I, you know, I think a couple of thoughts that come to mind because I meditate too is that I know like you're a meditator. people, I think sometimes think they're doing it wrong because they're having thoughts. Um, that's not the point. Like you know, the, you're not supposed to like stop all thought. I mean, I guess that you can have these pauses, or maybe if you get really good, you know, you can get concentrated and quiet. But for the vast majority of people, you know, it's about observing thoughts. Um, and then I, this idea of forgetting, like. Uh, I, like it's it's just unbelievable to me how quickly and consistently I forget that I'm alive. I forget what I'm doing. I will go for a hike and I'll spend the entire hike in some sort of mental melodrama. And then I'll get back to my car to drive home and I'll be like, did I just hike? Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you have these experiences where you get totally sidetracked and it's a daily thing. Like, it's not like a one-time or a two-time or a 12-time thing. Like, you have to, or at least I think most human beings, have to constantly work to, like, recalibrate and remind, I have to remind myself that, like, I'm not my mind. Like, the chattering insanity in my head is not me. Um, I don't know. Like, it's just... No, that's, that's 100, that, that is my experience also, right? Yeah, the, it's not, 
you don't just like buy the ticket and then you arrive and like that's it you know it's why people it's why ritual exists right it's like why people daven daily or why people meditate daily or any any ritual right yeah you don't just like there's i wish there was a pill yeah believe me yeah right (laughs) yeah i know and it just feels like uh it feels like hygienic to me at this point like i think i've i've seen the mess i've seen the mess of my own head enough that I'm like, oh, okay. And I know that like when I meditate, it feels like I kind of, it's like flossing, you know, it's like, I should probably do this because it's just such a disaster up there. But when I do this, it's like cleaning it up a little bit. And it kind of feels like if I'm not, it's like, it would be like not brushing your teeth, you know, just being like, eh, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like, that's kind of how I think of it. But yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's not like I'm meditating and I'm like, oh, I'm so spiritual. Like I'm meditating and I'm enlightened. No, it's just like when I don't do it, things are shittier. Right. And and like, it's like I have food. Things are so great. But yeah. I haven't arrived. But it's like when I don't, I'm like, oh, that's why I do. Right. And I'm that's like, why I do. I'm, I'm like more short tempered. I'm more of a dick to my wife and my kids. I feel more depressed. And it's like, it's, and again, it's not like by some huge percentage. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the improvements that it yields in my life are like small, but noticeable, you know, like, um, and I like to think that there's like some accrued benefit over time with consistency that like, maybe I'm inching like ever so slightly every day towards, you know, uh, some higher version of myself or something, but it's like a long, it's like a long haul practice kind of thing. Um, I also happen to think that it's really synchronous uh, with like a writing life or a creative life. Like the two things do go together nicely. You sort of have to sit down and stop and be still and sort of deal with deal with that that mind and the uncertainty and just kind of sit in the on, on the in the discomfort. That's writing, right? I mean, it's the same it's the same shit, but just different contexts. Well, yeah, and it's like, you know, the ocean, right? It's like the the top of the ocean can be choppy. Like a lot of times I'm meditating and like the top of the ocean's still choppy. Like I still got a lot of thoughts. But like I become conscious that there actually is a depth under there too at the same time. Like they can coexist. And so writing from that deeper place, in my experience, is always going to be richer than like writing from – a surface of the ocean um so yeah i think it's really it's really beneficial um and you know there's like a lot of metaphors about that right like they talk about like the pond like you know you toss a rock into a you toss a pebble into a still pond and like you see the ripples but if the pond's like fucking chaotic then like you're not gonna see any ripples um, right yeah right, right. no definitely and also it there's this poet uh muriel ruckeiser she's dead but she said the role of the poet, she's like, you just have to be a scarecrow for poems to land on. And I see that as the same as prose, right? And it's like, if you're not getting still enough for the stuff to land, how's it going to land? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like for whatever reason, uh, I've, I think maybe there's something about 
like divesting yourself from belief systems. Like you talked about, you know, this notion of Yahweh or all these different kind of conceptions that we were handed as kids and wanting to sort of deconstruct all that and get away from belief, like not only religious belief, but like too many beliefs in general. Like I get suspicious of myself whenever I catch myself in the fever of like really strong belief. Um, I don't know if you feel that way. Like sometimes you'll be like, yes, like this is the way things are. And I'm so right. And you know, you feel all this passion and then like, I'll go to sleep and wake up the next day and be like, I'm such an asshole. Like, is that even real? <laughs> you know, like it just never turns out well. And I think that something about meditation that works for me is you don't have to believe anything. Uh, and I think just the very fact that what you're doing is sitting down and shutting the fuck up and not moving like that is a radical act, especially in the culture that we live in today. And it just makes total sense to me, like a, that it would be difficult, but also that it would be like beneficial and possibly for certain people anyway, like necessary, you know, like that's how I feel about it in my own context. Like just sit the fuck down for 20 minutes a day, even, you know, or hopefully more. But I mean, like that alone, like it's got to be good for you. In Sometimes this... it's delicious. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's delicious because um, so my practice. I think the last time I was on the show was probably when the Pisces came out, like three years ago. And I was, I've always, I always did the Melissa Broder method of meditation, which was like a bunch of stuff cobbled together from like YouTube videos and stuff like that, and then. And I, I'm on this gratitude list. So I have some friends from New York. Like every day we like email each other some shit we're grat. I mean, sometimes we do, sometimes we forget, but we're shit we're grateful for. And like for years, some of my friends on that list were like writing like, they're like, yeah, transcendental meditation. And I was like, fuck these bitches with their designer meditation, like paying for their med. And I was like, so resentful. I was like, so, I hate, I was like, ugh, the designer. And then like a couple of years ago, I, it was around my birthday, like two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, I was like, well, I pay a lot of money on my hair. So like maybe it wouldn't, maybe it would be okay to like enrich my spiritual education a little more and pay some money for it. And, um, and I, so I, I did the TM thing like, and, um, so I've been doing, so my meditation practice, I mean, I've been meditating for a long time, but it sort of, it slightly shifted gears, I guess, like two or three years ago. Um, and as I said, I am definitely of the belief that like truth is one paths are many. Like, I think there's a million different great, meditation modalities um what i like about tm for myself is that um everything's okay you know what i'm saying it's like the thoughts kind of that's okay you feel like you're i there's always all these questions you know we're asking like well this happened or is it okay that it's all okay and my mind is not a mind that the my first thought is everything's okay it's all good (laughs) i'm the opposite so i didn't need like a critical and also I have found, um, oddly, which this was not something I, I was not expecting this, but, um, and I think it's just because I, I meditate more now because in TM you do like about 20 minutes in the morning and you do 20 minutes in, in the afternoon or evening, which for me ends up being like 15 and then like 15 at like midnight, like as I'm like <laughs> eating a protein bar, but you know, <laughs> ideally, um, but is the fact that I'm meditating for more time now, I think has definitely had an has influenced my, um, like my physiology. Like it really helped me with my panic attacks. Like I, I never was able to drink coffee or caffeine. And now that I have TM, I have the beautiful drug of caffeine back in my life, which is interesting. Yeah. So I do feel like something, and I don't know if that's because of TM or I, I mean, I don't believe that it's 
this magical modality. I think it has to do with that I have a mantra, and I think any mantra can be helpful in quieting the mind. And I also think um, just that I'm meditating more now daily. I think that had a big. I think I think the second because I try to do two times a day. Um, the second one I find just because of the circumstances of life and kids and stuff is harder. I get carried away with work and the second one's harder to sit down. The morning one is like, you can get to the cushion and I will sit in the morning. Like I've been getting up really early and then have been sitting for like 45 minutes. Like I try yeah. to do, I do like both basically of my sits in one, um, just cause it fits into my life better. But I think there's something to be said for getting caught up in the, flow of your work life and your just daily existence and all of the frenetic nature of it online and you're talking and you're having calls and you're doing podcasts and then taking the time on the back half of the day to stop like the the act of stopping and sitting on that cushion is so it's is hard for me like I'll find myself like you feel that inner resistance to it but Definitely. I think when you do it like I have no science to back this up, but it makes sense to me that if you can get into the regular habit of doing the twice daily sit, you know, separated by several hours, that it's going to have a nice effect on your nervous system in the way that you just described, because, you know, it, it, it's just like, you know, you do your sit in the morning and then you get caught up in the day and your nervous system gets ratcheted back up. And if you do that second sit, then you're going to hopefully take some of that edge off. And you're going to get the benefit. It's going to even you out over a greater portion of your life and your waking life, especially. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, for sure. I also like to think of it a little bit as magic too, right? Like I like the magic. I want the map. Give me the magic. You know, I'm yeah. just kind of like, I never like, with alcohol and drugs, I wasn't like looking up like the science of like, you know, like I didn't want to know the science. I was like, this is fucking magic. So like, I want that magic, you know, but yes, I, I a hundred percent agree. I think the pause, pause is magic. A shift in perception is magic. And I feel like, uh, you know, I think in like the Buddhist or Hindu or whatever cosmology that meditation seems to flow from, there's lots of magic. Like I'm such a sucker for these stories of these fucking gurus in India. Like, I don't like I read about Neem Karoli Baba, like on like a quarterly basis. <laughs> Because I was just so fascinated by the anecdotes about him. Have you ever read about him? Yes. Like where people like go up to him and he's like, you stole a cupcake from the bakery, you know, yesterday and you were thinking about your mom. And then like people just like burst into tears and it's like, he just like could, he could read people's minds. And like, yeah. I'm so fascinated by it because the stories are consistent from person to person to person. Like it's the same fucking thing. And it's to the point where like a skeptic like me is like, how can this many people be wrong? You know, like there's some, there, there's shit going on in this world and in this universe that is not um, observable by me, you know, at least I can't see it. There's just more than meets the eye and certain rare people are tapped into that magic and I'm willing to believe that. And it makes life more exciting to me to think that it's possible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the 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 one, the Atman, the collective, the collective, right? The co collective unconscious. Like, if Neem Karoli Baba's tapped into that, like, you're not reading minds, you're reading mind, right? It's yeah. like one. And I, of course, and yes, like I mean, you know, 
pickle my dog like can hear a dog whistle that i can't hear you know so there's probably a lot there's a lot we don't perceive yeah 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 and like what, what about uh but like while we're on this topic like i don't know if we talked about this on your previous guest appearances but um why am i blanking on the woman's name the hugging saint uh, ama. ama yeah do you still go i guess like in the age of covid poor ama can't no. be out hugging people no ama has not ama did not go on tour this summer this past summer, but but you, but, um, but you would go if like, if circumstances were different, you would be there. Yeah, I love it. It's so juicy. Okay, it's I mean, so good when I'm around Alma. Do you? But I mean, do you think she's like? Do you really think she's a saint? Like, is it like? Is it like? Is it authentic or is it like projection? Like, do you know? It's like how do you read your own experience of Alma? And for those of you um, listening who don't know who she is, she's like, and I want to say she's an Indian Hindu like considered like a living saint and she goes around the world and she holds these events where she hugs anyone in attendance who wants a hug. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And you've been hugged by her. I've been hugged, but even years before I got the hug, I would just go sit because I'm such a fucking junkie and I would glom on. I would get this vibe, this vibe, man. I would like, I would feel high in her presence. And it's weird because I found her my first year, the first year I was sober um and also through it's like a whole long thing but um I guess that was yeah 16 years ago um and I remember the first time I was around her I was like like I first I hated it I was like fuck all these like white assholes with like you know because it's just like this this like coterie of like a lot I mean it's people of all all ethnicities and races but like you know there's like a lot of like annoying like white people you know just like like selling crystals because there's like a whole bazaar that follows her and um and all the money goes to her organizations, but like I didn't know that, you know. I'm just like, who are I'm like who are these clowns with like the fucking like, you know, whatever. But and then so I'm sitting there and I and then like I had this moment and it was like I heard this voice and it was like God loves all the children the same no matter where we are on the path. And then all of a sudden I like went like whoosh and um, I felt really serene. I would describe it at the time I described it as high and I was scared. I'd gotten dose. I didn't know what had happened to me. And I think it was, wait, one of wait, the first... wait, wait, I got to stop you. You heard, a, you heard a voice in your head say this. Yes. Yeah. What I wrote did, a poem about that. What about did the voice it. sound like? I guess it's like a still small voice, probably maybe my, maybe my own voice, but not mine. Okay. okay. I didn't well, know. Mine, if... and, mine and not mine. It didn't not sound like, it, 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 it didn't sound like Charlton Heston, I guess is what I was like. <laughs> It sounded like B. Arthur, <laughs> who I think would be an incredible god. Yes, I'm much better than Charlton Heston. So, okay. You know, it was probably my own innate wisdom that we all have, right? Like, again, we talk about this, like, like I believe it's already in us, right? And, like, these teachers, like, Amma, Amma's, I think, a spiritual genius, right? Like, she's a genius teacher. Amma is a spirit, like, you asked if I think she's a saint. I think, like, saint is another word for spiritual genius. There are musical geniuses who can conjure, like, um, deep feelings of reverence and spirituality and um, ecstasy in us, right? And I think Amma is able to do that through philanthropy and also through her own refining of like her own meditation practices, right? Like Amma's deep meditator. Amma's a, Amma's a deep prayer. Amma has practiced. Like she is, it's like John Coltrane with the saxophone, right? Like John Coltrane was born probably very, very, very gifted. 
Amma was probably born very spiritually gifted, but both of them had to practice, you know, and they continue to practice every day. I mean, John Coltrane was never not playing a saxophone. So that is what I think. And, um, yeah, I agree. I think so too. I think like, that's a great way of like, uh, languaging it is that it's like an instrument and some people have like natural talent, but you still have to do the work. And I think too, like there's often something simple like, I just think, I, I think about Ama just giving people hugs. <laughs> There's something so radical about that, you know, like the, that simple act and, um, like making. You should come with me just, I, to, just to see what the deal is. I'll go anytime. I mean, as soon as this COVID bullshit is over, let's do it. I'm there. I'll go get a hug from Ama. Um, yeah. And, and it's, um, and it's interesting, like. I mean, you know, I brought Nikki, my husband, who's just not wired like that way. He does. He's not a non-believer. Like he's not, he's more of a, he's kind of like an agnostic pantheist vibe, but like, but like used to be more of an atheist. I think when he went like more convinced there was nothing. Now I think he's less convinced that there's nothing. So I'd say he's more of an agnostic. I don't know how you can be convinced that there is or isn't. Right. Um, but nonetheless, but so I brought him and I remember like, he didn't feel the vibe at all. Like he was like, just. He was very respectful. He was just like sitting in the back. It was at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York. They used to do it. And he was just like sitting in the balcony, like eating a donut, reading the New Yorker, chilling, you know, and I'm like fucking like, <laughs> I'm like so high off this vibe. Like I almost have vertigo, you know, and he's just like chilling. So it's, I think it's, it's different because I do think we contain it within us, you know, and to say it's Ama alone is to just look at the finger, right? Like it's like, it's, it's what she calls up, you know, what that is her gift, what she's able to, to bring that love that exists. I th I believe in, in all of us, you know? Um, but so, yeah. Wow. Well, I guess like a good way to close would be to ask about, um, like film and TV stuff. Like you've got an adaptation of the Pisces in the works. This uh, milk fed has been optioned as well. You you're writing the scripts for these. Yeah. So you adapt your own stuff. Like, can you just talk a little bit about what the status status of those projects is? And then also um, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're working on another book. You're so productive. I imagine you have like three novels, like in your phone somewhere. <laughs> just one. Okay. <laughs> So I have, um, yeah, so I wrote a couple of years ago the uh, screenplay for the Pisces, and now that is um, being produced. I wrote it for Lionsgate, and Lionsgate paired me with um, a woman who's a great producer named Ann Carey out of New York. Um, when Lionsgate changed, like, executives or whatever, I don't know, there's, like, always Hollywood shifts, we basically, like, took it back from them because we didn't think they were going to make it. So now Ann, Ann's production company... Um, brought on Gillian Robespierre to direct it and Claire Foy is going to star <clears throat> and um, we're casting Theo now, but I can't talk about that. Um, so I, but also I am just a screenwriter on that. Um, so I have like no control really over anything. You will know you, will you be, will you do a cameo? Will you be like on the beach in Venice, like in the background eating an ice cream cone or something? That or? would actually be cool. I didn't even think about it. I would prefer pickle to be in it. I yes. pickle to be in it. Okay. Um, yeah, but no, that could be cool. Maybe I will. Maybe. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Like sort of Hitchcock, you know, like yeah. just like walk through the background somewhere. Well, I don't, but see, the thing is I'm not a producer. I really, the screenwriter once you've written the screenplay, there's a great, there's an Alberto Moravia book um, called Contempt. And his description of being a screenwriter is like, 
the fucking best. Cause it's just like, like they don't need you. Like they do, but then they don't, you know? And so it's very, I have no, I don't, they'll tell me things that are happening. Cause they don't want me to hate the movie. Like they don't want me in entertainment weekly. Like I, you know, not like to be like talking <laughs> shit. Cause I wrote the book and the screenplay, but um, you know, but, but like I, I, it's not in my control anymore. Right. None of it's in my control. So it's like by a con Dios. But, um, with milk fed, I, I am a producer, which is interesting. I mean, I'm a producer right now of nothing because it hasn't, it hasn't gone anywhere yet, but ostensibly, um, they, I was hired by, um, ABC signature, which is a studio to, for, for these lovely women, Stacy and Liz, um, who have best day ever their production company with ABC. They hired me, they like optioned the book and hired me to write the pilot. So I wrote the pilot. So now we're doing the whole, we're going to be taking it out soon. Um, so like as a limited series, as a full series, like, like for seasons, like going on for seasons, baby. Whoa. But like, I at... mean, but again, we're talking about nothing right now. Cause it doesn't have a home yet, but, um, ostensibly like, but it would be milk fed and it would just be like an extrapolation of this world and these characters. Interesting. And then what about the next novel? And it's like, right. And you asked what it's like writing about your own stuff. It's like writing fanfic, you know, about your own characters. Right. Right. You're like, what can we do with them? Let's put them in this situation. (laughs) Um, And then you're working on another novel. Yes. I'm working on another novel that I wrote actually the first couple drafts of before milk fed. And then was sort of working on milk fed kind of at the same time. And then like realized the novel was a piece of shit and not something I wanted to take out. And so worked really hard on milk fed for like another nine months and then took milk fed out instead. But so I am like, I, I tore it up. I realized like the, I'm like, there's a little germ of the novel that had been in the drawer that like is coming into this new version that I'm writing, but um, it's very, very different, but um, I'm basically tearing something apart and putting it back together and hopefully it'll, it'll, I'll like it, but I don't know yet. It'll congeal. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna find out. All right. Well, you are uh, you're killing it. I'm happy to talk to you and to see you. I know you've had a rough go. You mentioned earlier your dad being in the ICU. Yeah. I know that he's had, you know, he had a car accident and has been, um, you know, in a serious health situation. So I know that like a book launch on its own can be stressful, and then you have all this Hollywood shit, and then you have personal and family stuff. So yeah. it's a lot at once, and on top of it, I forced you to get this fucking microphone, and you did that. Um, and just... I couldn't even spell my email right. <laughs> the microphone was the last straw. <laughs> my dad in the ICU for nine weeks, coding, it's having awesome. to be resuscitated. No big deal. The microphone. Melissa, if I could just get you... If I could just get you to go to Target in the middle of a once in a century pandemic to purchase this microphone so that our podcast could sound a little bit better, I would appreciate it. It's just a deck. It's just, listen, I was like, when you texted me the other day to be like, hey, Friday, right? I was like, oh, fuck. I didn't get the microphone. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to get so much trouble. And then I was like, because I respect you, Brad. I respect your audio quality very deeply. And I respect your respect for audio quality. Hey, I'm trying to do right by my listeners. And if we're going to do this and it's going to live online in perpetuity, it might as well sound good, right? Listen, I I want whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy, <laughs> I, I now have this microphone. <laughs> Me caring for the audio quality of this conversation is my equivalent of the ama hug. This is how I express my love for the universe, is to try, to, like... try to deliver good audio. You want to hug people's ears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, correct. Um, well, I'm happy for you, 
And always a pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad to talk with you. And I think this book is wonderful. It's also like people should know too. Like, it's a great love story. Like, it's a romantic book, and uh, it's got a sweet heart to it, and it's funny, and all you know, it's got all the things that uh, people love about Melissa Broder in it. So, um, I think you're going to find a lot of people responding to it well. So, congratulations. Thank you so much, Brad. All right, there you have Melissa Broder. Her new novel is called Milkfed. It is out there from Scribner as we speak. You can find Melissa online at melissabroder.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Melissa Broder. You can also follow at So Sad Today. Again, the novel is called Milkfed. Go get your copy immediately. It's got a big boob on the cover can't miss it. It's an artfully, tastefully rendered breast. Mammary. Melissa Broder, milk-fed. Great time talking with her, as always. The Other People podcast was launched in 2011. It's been around for almost a decade. It has offered freely nearly 700 episodes and counting. It's a listener-supported program. If you like the program, support the program tip your server you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod for as little as a dollar a month you know it's easy patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you have something to say to me you can email me the show's email address is letters at other ppl.com letters at other ppl.com This program has its own official app. It, too, is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available wherever you get your apps. If you would like to get some merchandise, Other People t-shirts, sweatshirts, a onesie for your child, you can do that. Just just go to the show's website at otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. Purchase some apparel. Coming up uh, next week on the program, who do I have? My God, I don't even know. Let me see here. The tension is mounting. Will there be another episode of the Other People podcast? I believe it's going to be Vesnameric. And I'm. you got to forgive me if I'm screwing up the pronunciation of that name. I'm still in the process of verifying. Vesnameric, author of uh, the novel The President Shop, which I just finished. All right? Okay, I think that wraps it up. The music's over. I'm out of here. Oh, wait. It wasn't over. It's never over until it's over. Okay, now it's over. (laughs) 